Now there's an outline um, on page six, if that's useful to you, you can follow along with that. Thank you. And let's pray. Our dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the way you sustain us while we sleep. Uh, we thank you for the common bond that we have in Christ, uh, whether it be living in Melbourne or Sydney, uh, whether we've been Christians a long time or newly just put our faith in Jesus. We thank you that it is the Lord Jesus who unites us. And uh, we thank you especially for your word, that in it you speak to us. And uh, we pray that as we look at your word now in Colossians, you give us hungry hearts, hearts that are willing to learn and be humble. And uh, we pray that we might be discerning, that we might have our Bibles open, always willing to be taught from the very word rather than a speaker. And uh, we pray that what we learn might help us to grow in our faith in Christ, that we might love him more and trust him more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to say, Joyce, that um, I can see where Zoe, your daughter, uh, gets her amazing godliness from. It was a pleasure to have Zoe and Paul with us up at Chatswood for a couple of years, so it was nice to actually see you and meet you. In Ireland a few years ago, a man wanted to impress his girlfriend. Uh, so he took her out uh, to dinner at a fancy restaurant. And as they were sitting, um, having their dinner, they looked out across the room and they saw Bono, uh, the singer from the band U2. And Bono was sitting at another table having dinner with a friend. And the man and his girlfriend are huge U2 fans. Uh, but they didn't want to disturb Bono, so they just sat there and tried to look like they weren't staring. But then at one point, Bono got up to go to the bathroom. So the man took his courage in his hands and he got up and walked over to Bono's friend. And he said, look, I'm a bit embarrassed about this, but we're really, really big fans of Bono. Do you think he'd mind if we got a photo with him and got his autograph? And the friend said, well, you know, I'm not sure, but when he comes back from the bathroom, I'll, I'll ask him. And, and if he says yes, I'll give you the cue. So they went and sat back down and Bono came back from the bathroom. And after a moment, um, the friend gave the signal. And so they went over to the table and they got his autograph and they got this friend to take photos of them and, you know, orchestrated the stuff and can you take another photo that wasn't good enough? And uh, it was all pretty exciting. Anyway, they finally went back to their table to finish their dinner and uh, at the end of their meal they asked for the bill. And the waiter said, oh, it's already been paid for. And they said, oh, did Bono pay for us? And the waiter said, no, 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 it wasn't Bono, it was his friend, Bruce Springsteen. Now, sometimes, if you knew who you were dealing with, you'd act differently. Now, the Apostle Paul had actually never met the Colossian Christians. He'd just heard a report about them while he was in jail. His friend, Epaphras, had told the Apostle Paul that the Colossian Christians were genuine Christians. And Paul writes them this letter, and he starts his letter by thanking God for them. So let's pick it up at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven 
and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So can you see what's happening? He's heard about the Colossian Christians from Epaphras who told them the gospel and he's heard that they're growing in their faith and love. And it's such wonderful news that Paul and Timothy have heard about this new little church and so Paul prays for them. He prays that they'll keep going, keep growing as Christians, growing in their knowledge and obedience and enduring the Christian life with patience. Let's pick it up again at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now, just a little side. It's fascinating. You know, when you, when you read the beginning of a letter, you often go, yeah, yeah, the grace and peace bit that Paul often does. But actually, if you slow down, you actually work out, wow, this is a story about real people that really happened. And here's Paul. He writes this amazing letter. I mean, so many people study the book of Colossians, and he's never met them. He's heard about them from Epaphras who took them the gospel and he prays this amazing stuff for them. You know, it just goes so beyond the kinds of prayers that we pray for people, right? I don't know about you, but I often go, yeah, can you just help them pass that exam? But here he prays this amazing stuff, doesn't he? That you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. He hasn't even met them and he's praying this amazing stuff for them. And then Paul not only is he thankful that they're growing in their Christian love and in their faith, he prays that they'll joyfully thank God. After all, Christians have got every reason to be joyful, haven't they? Because God, as we heard from Joyce, is the one who has given them everything that they now have in Christ. So verses 12 to 14 and giving joyful thanks to the Father. He's still praying for them that they will give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As another little aside before we get into the main point of this talk. Do you pray stuff like this for the Christians you know? It's actually really worth picking up little phrases that Paul uses, like, do you ever talk about heaven as the kingdom of light? Because this is the kingdom of darkness. Do you ever pray thanking God for someone that they've become a Christian? I'm sure you do. But how about praying, dear God, thank you so much that you've rescued Joyce and brought her into the kingdom of the Son that you love. 
and that you've given her redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You know, your prayers will widen if you just slow down and use the words that Scripture gives you. You'll all of a sudden be praying prayers that are just more than, dear God, please help her to become a Christian, which is a fine and dandy prayer, but, oh gosh, you can go so much deeper, can't you? So the Colossians, you've got their health report. They were doing great. They were growing as Christians, and Paul is really thankful for them. But it sounds as if, as you read the letter, that Epaphras has also reported a few problems to Paul. Because from chapter 2 onwards, we hear that there are some false teachers lurking in Colossae. And what are these false teachers saying? Well, they're telling the Colossians that trusting Jesus isn't enough to make you a fully-fledged Christian. They were saying stuff like, yeah, yeah, trust in Jesus, that's all fine and good, but there's a bit more to it. You also have to follow certain rules and certain practices. And they were basically saying that faith alone in Jesus alone isn't enough. So in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that this kind of teaching might be a fine-sounding argument, but it's a deception of the truth. And he warns the Colossians not to be led astray. Let's pick it up at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, notice something else here. Have you ever heard someone say, maybe you've said it yourself, Oh, no, 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 I couldn't rebuke that person because I don't know them well enough yet. Or I couldn't ask a deep question because I, I, you've got to get to know them first. Does Paul know the Colossians? If you care about someone's faith in Christ, it won't matter how well you know them because it will be your love that will motivate you to say the hard words to them. So Paul here wants to make sure that the Colossians stick to the true gospel message. And so here's what he does. He shows them who Jesus is. Because you know what? If they truly understand who Jesus is, it will actually help them not to be led astray by false teaching. So here's Paul's point in this letter, in this part of the letter. Jesus is supreme over everything. He's supreme over this creation, the world, and he's supreme over the new creation to come. Christ is all. Let's take a look at Christ's rule over creation. Now, Paul uses a couple of ideas or a couple of expressions to get this idea across. First of all, he says, Jesus is the image of God. Now, that's a little tricky expression, sometimes confusing. But you've got to understand that back in those days, an emperor, like Caesar, would set up images of, his, of himself in the countries that he ruled. And the image was meant to represent his rule over that country. The image made visible the emperor's rule. Let me quote from a historical source. Images of gods or kings were viewed as representatives of the deity or the king. 
there was a close unity between the god, the deity, the emperor, because they often taught that they were like a deity, and his image. So when Paul says Jesus is the image of God, what he's saying is Jesus is the ruler of the universe on God's behalf. In other words, Jesus is where the rule of the invisible God is made visible. Now Paul also uses the expression the firstborn. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus was created. He's actually not referring to his birth. It's actually a way of explaining that Jesus is in charge. You see, back in those days, the firstborn son was the ruler over the other children. So for example, in Genesis 27, when Isaac gives his firstborn blessing, he says, be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. The firstborn was supreme in the family. So with both of these expressions, the image of God and the firstborn over creation, Paul is saying Jesus is the supreme ruler over all of creation. Now I've given you those explanatory things so you can have them at the back of your mind as we now turn to the text and read them. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Can you now understand what it means? He's the visible ruler on earth of the invisible ruler God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, the supreme ruler over all of creation. Jesus is the supreme ruler of this world. Now, you think about that statement. Because if you look around at the world, then and now, does it look like Jesus is ruling? I don't think it looks like Jesus is ruling. And Paul would have known that the Colossians would have known that. And so he goes on to tell the Colossians why it is that Jesus rules over creation. And he uses three very important words. If you're into grammar, they're three prepositions. Paul says that the whole creation was made in Jesus, the creation was made through Jesus, and creation was made for Jesus. All of creation, that includes physical creation, the spiritual powers of this creation, they were all made in, through, and for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In other words, He's the instrument of creation. He's the purpose of creation. Creation was made by him. Creation was made for him. And that's why Christ is all. Verse 16. So he's just said, Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the ruler of the whole world. And notice, what's the next sentence begin with? A for. In other words, an explanation, because in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers 
or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, I've got goosebumps running up my arms. Did you hear that? Everything. There is nothing that was not made in Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. You exist. You were made by God for Jesus. You know, sometimes I think about it when I look at my dog, Stella. Because I just think she's the cutest thing. I love the way she sits and she just wants to be patted. That, that thing in dogs that craves for that kind of affection. And I look at her and I go, she, you know, it doesn't say that animals were made in the image of God, but there are qualities there that take after our Heavenly Father, aren't they? And then I go, wow, God made this thing that leaves white hair all over my whole house for Jesus. You know, when I look at meerkats, does anyone here like meerkats? I love meerkats. And I think, God made them for Jesus. And then I look at my kids, and then I look at my, the women in my Bible study sometimes, and I go, wow, God made you for Jesus. And then I look at my non-Christian friends and I think, wow, God made you for Jesus and you're ignoring him. And you know what else? It's not just that everything in all of creation was made by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is so amazing that he came before all of creation. Now, remember this, that back in those days, if you were older than someone, then the assumption was that you were higher in rank. It's partly what I love about Japanese karate. There's a lot of tradition and a lot of respect for older people. Italians are the same. I think the Aussie culture has mostly lost the plot on that one. I'm not saying that all old people are worthy of respect. But that because they're older, you give them respect and you treat them kindly. Well, it's definitely the case in Jesus' culture that if someone was older than you, the assumption was that they were higher in rank than you. And here's where Paul uses that to explain something about Jesus. He says, Jesus existed before all of creation. Jesus didn't just make the universe. He's sustaining it every moment. He's over creation. One, co one commentator puts it like this. Without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, whatever that means, but I get that must be something big, right? I'm not science-related. Gravity would cease to work, that I get. The planets would not stay in their orbits. The universe owes its continuing coherence to Christ. I often pray this in the mornings. I think it's just incredible, isn't it, that when you're asleep, it's like you're anaesthetized somehow, right? It's an incredible thing, isn't it? And you wake up and God has not been asleep. He has been watching over you every breath. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Jesus is the boss because he's older and higher in rank, so much so 
that he was there before all of creation. All of creation sits under him because he sustains it all. Let's see how Paul puts it because he puts it much more beautifully and succinctly than the rabbiting that I've been doing. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. If you are not moved by this, you have fallen asleep. Wake up. It's actually difficult for us to get our heads around it, isn't it? You think about it. Jesus has always existed. He predates creation. And everything that we can see, even the galaxies we can't see, or gravity itself, everything in creation was made in Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, and without him, everything would cease to exist. I have goosebumps on my arms. Jesus is extraordinary, isn't he? Christ is all. And the little struggling church in Colossae was part of creation. And they needed to understand that the Lord Jesus himself rules over every aspect of creation. There's the first point. This Jesus that you started following, he's the ruler of creation. But not only that, not only is Jesus the ruler of this creation, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the ruler of God's new creation, the future new creation. Jesus holds rank not only over this creation, but over the new creation. How? Well, because Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. That is, he will be supreme ruler over everyone who is resurrected at the last day. And you know what? In one sense, that is a future new creation, but it actually has already started. It starts with his church. And by that, of course, I don't mean a building. I mean those who are trusting in Jesus, us, the Colossians. And you know why it's already started? Well, because it's Christians who are going to live on in the new creation. And Jesus is the head of the church now. What happens when we become a Christian? John Calvin, one of the reformers, put this so beautifully, that the Spirit, through faith, the Spirit unites us to Jesus. So there's a sense in which we're already part of the new creation that is ruled by Jesus because Jesus is the ruler of our future where the church will be united fully and physically face to face with Jesus. Let's see how Paul explains it in verse 18. So he said, he's the ruler over all creation and now and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Not just now in this creation, 
but in the new creation too. And did you notice the word Paul uses to describe the extent of Jesus' rule over the new creation? Did you hear it? So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now it's worth asking the question, how is it that Jesus, the resurrected one, can have supremacy over everything? And again, Paul goes on to give us the reason why. And there are two reasons. It's because all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Everything that there is to God is there in Jesus. And the second reason is because Jesus is the one who died on the cross to make peace with this whole creation that he rules over. It's a lot to unpack, but let's just see how Paul puts it in verse 19. Now, whenever you see the word for, what do you ask yourself? It's like the word therefore, right? What is the therefore? Therefore for is another word, another way of saying because. So he's saying, so that in everything he might have the supremacy because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, let's just stop for a minute to think about what Paul's just said, because it's quite extraordinary. What does it mean that Jesus will reconcile and make peace with everything in heaven and earth? Everything? If you think about it, there are a couple of ways to reconcile or make peace. You can reconcile or make peace by finding a compromise. Sometimes I do that with my kids. Or you can give in. Sometimes I do that with my kids. If that's what this means, then this verse is basically saying that everyone will ultimately be saved. That Jesus will find a way to compromise with them and make peace. Or that he'll give in and everyone will go to heaven. It's a nice thought, but I don't think that's what Paul means because it's not consistent with the rest of the New Testament. The New Testament is very clear that not everyone will be saved. And in a moment, we're going to see Paul reaffirm that. But if it doesn't mean that Jesus reconciles everything in the sense that everyone will be saved, what does it mean? Well, there's another way to understand reconciliation and making peace. Another way that you reconcile and make peace is by winning the war. So, for example, in World War II, the Allied forces made peace with Germany. The battle was finished. Reconciliation happened. Peace was restored. But it wasn't exactly on Germany's terms, was it? No. Reconciliation and peace came because Germany was defeated. Because Germany was forcibly pacified. In other words, reconciliation and peace came through victory. And you see, that reconciliation and peace is more like the biblical imagery here 
of reconciliation and peace. Think about it this way. The creation is at war with God through sin. But through the cross, Jesus has won victory. And the day is coming when everything and everyone will need to bow the knee to Jesus. And that will happen whether they want to or not, whether they like it or not. The war has been won, but the ramifications are still spilling out, aren't they? And one day, everyone will see that God has won that war. Everything will be brought back into subjection under God. Reconciliation and peace will come, whether people like it or not, and it will come through the victory that Jesus has won at the cross where he defeated God's enemies. He defeated sin, he defeated death, and he defeated the powerful enemies of God. Jesus isn't a half-hearted victor. He's victorious over everything that is against God's rule. And so one day everything will be pacified and the war will finally be over. And it will be shown because every knee will bow to Jesus. But Jesus' death does actually make peace in another way. It's a reconciliation that everyone needs, a peace that is relevant for this life and for the next. And you know what? Jesus' victory at the cross makes all the difference for how we live in this life and the next. And so now Paul turns to the Colossians and he says and reminds them, he reminds them that before they turned to Jesus, they were at war with God. They were enemies of God. They were hating and rebelling against God. Their future before they trusted in Christ was of one, a defeat by Jesus, of being forced, whether they would like it or not, to bow the knee to Jesus. This is where Paul reaffirms the idea that not everyone is going to be saved. Have a look with me at verse 21. Once, speaking to the Colossians, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But, it's a very big word, something happened which made all the difference. The death of Jesus brought pardon. In other words, it took away God's righteous accusations against them. God was right to condemn them. But the blood of Jesus washes away the dirt and the blemish of their sin and their disobedience. And God has now set the Colossians apart to be his own special people. So instead of the Colossians being God's defeated enemies in the new creation, these Colossians are now his beloved friends. Verse 22, they were enemies but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus makes all the difference. All the difference in this world and all the difference in the next world. 
Think about it. His death changed the way the Colossians related to God. They were enemies, but now they were holy and blameless. Not defeated enemies anymore, but forgiven friends. But did you notice that there's an if? You have to make sure, like when you sign a contract, you know like the iTunes stuff where you just go, agree? I just go, oh, just press agree because I really don't want to have to read it. But if something went wrong, you'd go back and read it and then you'd see the ifs. And there is an if here. Because this thing that Jesus has done is not automatic. Paul says it requires something from the Colossians. And what does it require? It requires not only that they rely on Jesus, put their faith in him, but that they keep relying on Jesus. It requires that they keep believing the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done. Verse 23, they can be holy and blameless, beloved friends, if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, this, of course, actually answers the question we asked earlier about whether peace and reconciliation is for everyone. It's not for everyone. The good news is proclaimed to everyone, but it's only good news if, if you rely on the death of Jesus, if you voluntarily submit yourself to Jesus now. You don't have to be God's defeated enemy anymore. You can live without blemish, free from accusation, set apart to be God's own person. And you know what? It's a massive difference. Do you remember before I said that expression? It's the difference between being in the kingdom of the Son in whom you are redeemed, set free from your slavery to sin and death, or being in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. I mean, ultimately, that's the only two spheres that people live in. They're either in the kingdom of the Son, forgiven through faith in Christ, or they're enemies of God in the kingdom of Satan. So that means Paul wants to make sure that this little church he's heard about, that he's never met, but he's heard that their faith is growing, he wants to make sure that nothing moves them from that message. You don't want to move out from the only source of hope. You need to continue in that faith. And that means you don't want to add to it and you don't want to subtract from it. You don't want to go anywhere. You want to stay just there, established and firm, trusting in Jesus alone. So can you see what, what Paul and what God himself have been explaining here to the Colossians. Let's summarise it. Jesus is the king of creation. He's the supreme ruler of everything, of this creation and the new creation. 
and one day everything and everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I finished most days praying, please, Jesus, come tonight. And my days are never perfect. There's plenty I would rather see done and dusted. But when the Lord Jesus returns, he will establish his supremacy visibly. The Colossians were once enemies of God facing defeat, but God in Christ through the faithful proclamation of the gospel, had granted them faith in Jesus and they'd been graciously pardoned and cleansed through the blood of Jesus. And so they are so precious to Paul that he wants to make sure they do not move from the message of the gospel. A few years ago in Sydney, this is a true story, well, you know, as true as I can verify it, a lady was helping her husband in his jewellery store. Now, he had to go out and do some jobs, and she was minding the shop, and an American man came in. Now, he sees a large pink argyle diamond. Now, I don't know much about diamonds, but they're very expensive, apparently. I don't own one. And they're worth about $30,000. Well, this particular one was worth $30,000. So he decides he wants to buy it. And he asks the lady to take it out from behind the counter and uh, he tries to pay for it on his credit card. Can you imagine having a credit card that allows you to pay $30,000? Anyway, she swipes the card. And at that moment, the computer and the technology freeze. And she's thinking, I'm in the middle of the biggest sale of the month and the system goes down. The man notices that she's looking worried and he says, what's the problem? And she says, oh, the computer's frozen. And he asks her what kind of computer he is, and she tells him, and then he says, oh, yeah, okay, I see the problem. You need to press this button and this button, and that'll fix it. And she looks at him like, okay, this is my husband's computer. I really don't want to wreck it. And she says to him, do you know what you're talking about? Like, do you know much about computers? And he says, oh, I know a bit. Anyway, she figures it's worth the risk, and she does what he said. And the computer starts working again. And he says, hey, thanks, um... And uh, she says, oh, thank you. You do know a bit about computers after all. Anyway, the American man pays, and he walks out with his Argyle diamond worth $30,000. Later on, her husband comes back, and uh, he says, anything interesting happened while I was away? And she tells him the story. And the husband says, so who was this bloke? She says, oh, I don't know. Maybe look at his credit card. And so she checks out, you know, the credit card imprint or whatever it was that they were using in those days, and uh, she finds out that they had sold the diamond to William Henry Gates III, Bill Gates, the computer giant. Quite an extraordinary story. And what's it got to do with the Colossians? See, sometimes if you know who you are dealing with, you act differently. Here's the thing. We can talk about the gospel the gospel this, the gospel that, blah, blah, blah. You know, but the gospel is a person. It's the Lord Jesus himself. It's not just what he's done. It's who he is that is just as important as what he's done. Because what he's done affects who he is. Do you realize who you are dealing with when it comes to Jesus? Because if you do then you've got to realise 
that you have everything you need in Christ. That he's the supreme ruler and perfect saviour of the world. And if you know that, then you know what our response should be, don't you? We know how to respond to the Lord Jesus, who is the supreme ruler of the world, don't we? Well, I would imagine that it's exactly what Paul says. We need to humbly and thankfully continue in the faith that we were taught. Trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, established and firm, not moved from the hope that is held out in the gospel. Now, just as an aside, that doesn't mean life is dandy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have dark days. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick. It doesn't mean that a loved one's not going to die. It doesn't mean that life is easy. It, it's definitely still hard and dark. But without Jesus, it's only dark. And living in a fallen world doesn't mean that every problem is solved today. But you can know that Jesus is on your side. And you can know for sure that one day the hurts of this world will be fixed. There will be no more pain. And there will be no more suffering. And you can know that Jesus is by your side because he doesn't abandon his people. So I guess the encouragement is you have to live by faith and not by sight. I, I pray that every night for myself. I sometimes think if I were in Joyce's position and Jeff were to die, would I still be able to keep trusting Jesus? Would I? I sometimes hear my single friends say, what if I never marry? What if I have to live out my years single? Can I keep trusting Jesus? What if I never get over my depression? What if one of my children gets killed in a car accident? I was thinking the other day about my broken toe and I was thinking, oh, it sounds like nothing, right? But it's actually been such a pain and like, literally a pain. And I haven't been able to exercise and it's so debilitating. And then I think, this is not life-threatening. Like, what, what, what if I became a paraplegic? Would I still love Jesus? Would I still trust him? Every day I pray, please God, no matter what you send, help me to keep trusting Jesus. So here's the question. You won't be able to do it unless you keep your eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is wonderful. Has always existed. Has made you for him. Is the ruler over this creation and the next and is the only hope that you have. So will you remain in Christ, established and firm, not moved from the only hope you have in him? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this great message of hope. We thank you for this person, the Lord Jesus, who is truly incredible. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around him. And so we pray that we would love him and be captured by him 
and never take our eyes off him, that our focus might always be clear and never hazy. We pray that you might give us what we need to stand firm and established in him always, no matter what. We pray this in his name. Amen.